Blog Talk Radio.
tracking who we need And call this liberty days, 
uh, you had written under the name The Resistor, and uh, I know that you, you have several, you've authored several books now. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, about how you got into, uh, into doing what you're doing now, and then uh, maybe we can talk about, uh, about the ways that people can begin working on uh, establishing at least uh, some type of base com- uh, communication systems. Uh, sure. Well, let's see. I actually got started probably in the you know late 70s, uh, early 1980s. Um, originally in the preparedness, uh, um, you know, a movement. I guess you could you could say that. And uh, one of the things uh, I actually I stumbled across this uh, really really good book. Uh, it's actually a, a pulp book uh, entitled um, "How to Survive a Nuclear uh, Disaster." And uh, you know they were you know they're talking you know late Cold War here um, you know the Cold War was actually still in you know full swing uh, you know in the in the mid you know mid to late 80s uh, people you know were concerned about that with Soviets and uh, one of the things that they you know mentioned in that book was actually you know communications with um, uh, using either CB or something called a two meter radio and as I later went and investigated it I you know I found out that they were actually referring to VHF uh, amateur radio. Um, you know, communications, uh, mostly for, you know, local, you know, mobile-to-base communications uh, in a local area. Um, always had an interest in electronics, so I kind of went in that direction, and, uh, you know, the, the rest is history, so to speak. Okay, and and I know from speaking with you uh, on the phone uh, this last week that uh, that you also have a background in some communications work in the military, right? Uh, yeah, I was an Army communicator for a few years. And uh, right. in- interesting and interesting and, and, and fun work. Um, the military has its own unique way of doing things communications-wise. Um, some of the basic concepts uh, that the military um, you know, uh, you know, puts forth in, in their whole communications philosophy, definitely, you know, bear paying attention to. Uh, however, again, not all of us have a, um, you know, not all, not all of us have a, uh, you know, a tax base of Americans, uh, you know, to finance our toys with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, uh, they certainly had, uh, they certainly have a ton of equipment there. Although I think that you and I were talking about too, about the fact that, uh, I don't know what it's like now. I'm sure it has to always be like this as far as electronic gear and stuff, and that is a lot of times it was hard to get anything to work. And I'm sure that's I'm sure that's still the way it is. You know, if you have gear that gets rough usage, then uh, uh, by 17-year-old boys, I'm sure that uh, it has like a limited lifespan. Well, we have you coming down uh, to our facilities in December to teach a course. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about what folks are going to learn when they come to the course in December? Uh, sure. Basically, it's a two-day course, and uh, the first day is uh, going to be um, a little bit of a classroom with uh, an evil PowerPoint presentation, but I don't like PowerPoint, so we try and keep it to a minimal, uh, followed by you know a little bit of practical stuff in the afternoon, and then Sunday uh, we go out in the field and uh, you know, have a bit of an FTX where they, you know, where you learn how to, you know, set up gear and you set it up and you actually, you know, communicate with it and uh, go on the air. Um, the course basically, uh, you know, it's going to teach someone uh, with basic electronics knowledge and 
you know, hopefully, uh, you know, their, their ham license. Uh, some special considerations uh, that have to be taken into account for, you know, you know, grid down uh, type communications. Uh, big part of the course involves uh, communications monitoring. Uh, I'm really big on that. Um, it's something you can do without a license. Uh, it's something you can do with a very, very low profile uh, because you're not transmitting. And in the event that your standard news outlets uh, cease to exist or have become you know, co-opted uh, for whatever reason, um, being able to monitor you know, the airwaves and some of the non-broadcast communication stuff that's going around you it's definitely going to, you know, uh, help your overall, you know, estimate of the situation and, you know, get you information in. Uh, the military calls that, you know, communications intelligence. Uh, basically, you know, putting together an estimate of what's going on in the outside world, um, you know, by monitoring communications. Right. And that is, I think, probably one of the, the most important aspects of what folks are going to learn when they come to the class. Uh, number one, just the realization that this is something you should be doing, and number two, the way you're going to be, the way you're going to go about doing it, about how you're going to use your gear, as you said, is in a passive manner. That means, uh, and when you said that, that people can do the, all this stuff without license, now they can, because the only thing you need an actual license for is to put your signal out into the mix. That's where that's why you would need a license. You know, if you're not going to be doing that, you're just going to be listening, then you don't need a license for that. <laughs> and the listening part is the, I think, one of the most important aspects of what you're going to be doing with the gear because you're going to be, uh, you're going to be finding out the, the, who is the, who is in, uh, around you, who is talking, what they're talking about what times of day they're talking, uh, and hopefully trying to figure out uh, to get a, a bigger picture. And then uh, can you can you give folks a little bit of a uh, how they're going to use the information to start building a uh, profile of the of their situation and of, and who's around and stuff like that. Well. One of the fortunate things, you know, about, you know, the United States is that all civilian radio license data, uh, and by civilian I mean uh, civilian agencies, that's uh, everything from the uh, state level on down, um, is public information. So, for example, you know, if you jump up on, on you know, on the correct FCC website, uh, you can pull the whole list of every radio frequency uh, and locations assigned to that frequency um, for the state of Texas that are assigned by the FCC. And now federal government stuff is a different story. Uh, back in the uh, back in 1983, uh, I think it was Reagan um, actually signed an executive order which classified all the um, all the federal government um, frequency uh, you know frequency license data um, so that. Um, yeah, that stuff was, you know, became uh, exempt from, actually, you didn't necessarily classify it. They just made it exempt from the, uh, you know, from uh, FOIA requests. Uh, right. However, all the state, county, local, um, you know, um, license data is still public information. And by 
using that you know by using that source um, you know that, that public source off the internet you can actually get roughly 80 to 90 percent of what's licensed in your area uh, you know for um, you know for a start you know to start looking at it um, another thing is that there actually are you know hobbyists who engage in you know communications monitoring as a hobby um, you know scanner hobbyists and they have you know websites and forums where they uh, fill in a lot of gaps. Uh, so depending on where you're located, I would say that you know, fully of you know what you probably are going to want to listen to has already been mapped out for you, and it's just a matter of you know programming it uh, you know into your receiver and going at it from there. And in fact, uh, actually, uh, Uniden, uh, who makes the Bearcat series of scanners, uh, actually has scanners that have preloaded databases in them. And you either hook up a GPS uh, receiver to it, it pulls your location and starts loading in everything within a you know, certain mile radius, or you can actually put in a zip code, and it will pull everything within a certain mile radius of that zip code and start monitoring it. Uh, so even, you know, e even for an initial look uh, you know, by a novice uh, of the local spectrum, you pretty much have, you know, they, they all but give you the keys to the candy store. Wow. Okay, so you can... Uh that means that you can you can be monitoring the stations that are known to you to be a uh, a certain uh, or if you hear something on a certain frequency, then you will know that it belongs to a certain agency. Correct. All right, that will give you some idea of who's talking and who is who is working in your area and uh, and what they're what they're you'll be able to hear what they're talking about now I don't know if if uh, if there are systems because I, I'm, a, I'm I'm not knowledgeable in this but if there are systems that they're using that are encrypted then you're not going to hear or understand what they're saying right uh, if the system is encrypted uh, well, actually, there's two. Um, uh, basically, if the system is encrypted, you're not going to hear it. Uh, okay. And also, back in 1986, um, when they had the, um, you know, back in the mid 80s, when cellular phones started becoming popular, and um, that was, uh, you know, and, and what happened is, I mean, there have been mobile phones out since the 1960s. Um, you know, I, I heard stories, um, you know, uh, you know, from New York City about uh, the guys, uh, you know, in the, in the 1980s, the guys on the mobile phone systems who'd be talking in Russian and Arabic, and they'd, you know, be going on and on and on and on. And occasionally, you just hear some English word like New York Times, and, and you always wondered what they were talking about. But the <laughs> the thing is, uh, and that was actually back in, you know, the early, you know, early 1980s before they, you know, passed laws. Uh, you know, against, you know, listening to certain communications. But when cellular phones started getting popular and um, basically what happened is mobile phones were a certain very, very, were at a certain very, very expensive price point up until the mid-1980s. And then when the cellular phones came out, uh, which were on a higher frequency band, that price point went down uh, by an order of magnitude. So instead of instead of it costing, say, you know, um, you know, five thousand uh, dollars to get a mobile phone for your car. Now all of a sudden it went down to a thousand dollars. When 
the when more people started um, using wireless phones, and these phones were they weren't digital like they were like they are now. They were you know just regular you know same same FM as you know anything else. Uh, yeah, they said a few things on it, and that got overheard, and you know it got posted out wherever. Um, so naturally, the feds went and passed a law which basically made it illegal to listen to cellular phones. Um, and they actually later on passed a law uh, basically restricting the uh, scanner receivers from having cellular phones in them uh, because, uh, you know, uh, so that's all of a sudden, that's why you have, you know, receivers in this country that are blocked, you know, have certain blocked frequencies in 800 megahertz because of, you know, that law. Um, however, uh, one of the other things that came about of that law, which was called the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, um, one of the other uh, lesser-known aspects of that law was that it made it illegal to go and, you know, listen into any, you know, encrypted radio communications. Uh, it also made it illegal to listen into um, remote uh, news gathering feeds. Uh, so I, I figure the mass media ha had a little bit of an in there with Congress and got that thrown in. But um, yeah, I mean, for the you know, for the sake of you know our discussion, yeah, li listening to encrypted you know communications is illegal, and there's no uh, commercial off-the-shelf equipment available to civilians in the United States to, uh, you know, to do that sort of thing. Um, right. However, with that said, the vast majority of communications uh, out there is still unencrypted. Um, a few public safety agencies might be partially or fully encrypting their communications. However, even in that case, there are uh, supporting agencies that um, you know that are running unencrypted, so you can still get an idea of what's going on. Like, take for right. example, you know, down down where you are in Texas. Now, I'm just going to take you know a wild guess and assume that perhaps, um, if not your if you're, if not your town, but maybe some of the surrounding towns nearby, are probably you know serviced by a volunteer fire department, um, yep. and they probably oh. are maintained or you know, and that volunteer fire department. Uh, is probably dispatched out by a regional dispatch center. Well, you know, that dispatch channel, uh, that regional, you know, whether it's county or regional or city dispatch channel for that volunteer fire department is going to be unencrypted, right? Because otherwise, how are the guys going to get it on their little, you know, Minotaur pagers? Right. Um, likewise, um, interoperability channels, which are channels designed for different agencies to talk back and forth amongst one another. I mean, when you're talking a radio system that has a few thousand, you know, different uh, subscriber units on it with, you know, 10 or more um, agencies using it, they, they can't encrypt that because they wouldn't be able to talk to one another. So, and, you know, they'll have an unencrypted channel that they'll be able to talk back and forth, uh, you know, interagency-wise uh, for interoperability, um, you know, and in the case where a really big something happens, um, you know, they're going to get on that channel, and by listening into that channel, um, you know, you'll know something's going on. And, of course, the added bonus about that is that those channels are generally pretty quiet for the most part, um, unless they're testing them, until something big happens. Um, right. So you can basically just, you know, listen to, in most areas, you can plug in, say, 50 interoperability uh, you know, special use channels, and those channels will be pretty quiet, and you won't be distracted with, you know, you know, the usual, you know, routine calls 
license plates getting, you know, um, you know, called in and all that, and all the mundane traffic um, that's always, you know, kicking out on the, you know, on the frequencies. And like I said, then when you know something's going on, you know, they're going to be on that channel, and you can go up. The interrupt channel is active. You know, something's going down. So it's kind of helpful in that manner. Yeah, and that that would be because, like you said, if whenever anything is going on, uh, they're going to need the support. Uh, they're going to need support agencies, uh, different things to to help them. Either the fire, ambulance services, anything like that. They'll need to. They'll need the support of those agencies. What about yeah? Let's talk for a minute about the police uh, scanners and stuff that people can can uh, can get fairly uh, inexpensively and monitor those. Um, yeah, they are. Um, I mean, there are various you know mail order sources, and you know, if depending on what city you're in, there might be a local source. Um, and you know, the the units are you know fairly inexpensive. They go from Probably about a hundred dollars a piece on up to I'd say five or six hundred for the you know for the you know deluxe models that can you know decode the digital p twenty five communications um and you know depending on your area you know one of those will you know suffice in enabling you to keep uh you know to keep listening on to uh, you know into what's going on in your in your area of operations all right most people have uh most people who are who are not already into the communications, uh, I guess, world or lifestyle, because I know that the, I've got friends that uh, <clears throat> that do this, and it's almost like uh, uh, the minute you the minute you mention communications uh, or radio or ham radio or anything like that, that it flips a switch in them and they go completely live. And uh, and they they really uh, they the people that are involved in this it's almost like a lifestyle I guess just like with any any uh, intensive hobby yeah uh, they have uh, they have uh, tons of equipment and knowledge and stuff but for the most part most people don't most people are not uh, aware of uh, of this this aspect of communications which means that they don't have uh, they have very little, if any, type of equipment uh, in order to access this. Most people will have, at the most, uh, maybe they have uh, some citizens' band radios left over from, uh, you know, the CB, the, the big CB heyday back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so let's start off with, with that, too, that uh, if uh, how... How useful is uh, a citizens band radio and and what can folks hope to get out of uh out of that as far as communications well c b i mean okay I'll have to admit all right now I've been a ham for close to thirty years now but i got I got my start you know with, with c b stuff because my parents had the um you know since you know i growing up in the seventies uh, you know my parents were you know rural rural New York state we were in the middle of the c b craze you know all out. I mean, my dad yeah. put a big old quarter wave uh, ground plane antenna on the roof of the house, and uh, you know his pickup truck and mom's Chevy Nova had the you know had the big hundred inch uh, stainless steel whip antennas, you know, and the cars had CBs in them, and you know we had a CB base station, uh, you know, at the house, um, 
right next to you know right next to the police scanner because you know my you know my family was also involved with you know the local uh, you know fire department and EMS squad, and uh, the uh, I have to say okay it works the I mean we okay you know now we had you know we had the setup you know done properly you know with a full sized uh, antenna you know resonant on frequency tuned and likewise with the cars but. We weren't in the best, you know, best spot. I mean, we were stuck behind two hills, um, you know, about 700 feet above sea level, and they, uh, you know, 300 feet a hill, uh, extra hill, uh, on, on both sides of us. But we still wound up getting a consistent 15 to 20 mile range, um, you know, in most directions, uh, off these simple little, you know, five watt. Uh, you know, AM only, uh, you know, CB rigs. And the rigs weren't tweaked out or anything. They weren't boosted. They didn't have any extra channels. They were just stock, you know, 40-channel, um, you know, regular, you know, 5-watt CBs. But in this case, you know, the antennas actually made all the difference. And, you know, that's what enabled us, you know, to get the range. And when I was working up in the Adirondacks, you know, back in the early 90s, and, you know, okay, at that point the sunspot cycle was kicking up a bit, I mean, I had a similar setup, um, but, you know, not as big of an antenna on my car. You know, just a little 40-inch, you know, magnet mount. Again, stock CB, but, um, you know, I was hearing, uh, you know, I was hearing stations, you know, as far up as Quebec. And, you know, they were coming in like it was next door, you know, when the band was rolling. So, uh, you know, I can't, uh, you know, I can't discount, uh, you know, 27 megahertz, uh, you know, CB's uh, use as a, you know, as a jungle telegraph system, especially for local and possibly approaching, you know, regional communications. You just got to, you know, build the system up right. Uh, likewise, doesn't require a license, and, you know, you can pick up a CB at Walmart, probably, you know, wind up going to a decent, you know, decent truck stop for the antennas. Um, or, the, or the CB shop that invariably is about a mile or two down the road from the truck stop. Um, <laughs> But um, CB shops are, are a great place. I mean, if you if you don't know where your nearest CB shop is, if you live near an interstate uh, or any place that deals with any type of trucking, which is pretty much most of the United States, uh, especially you know not so much up here in the uh, in the Northeast because you know we're we're a little on the uncivilized side up here. But um, you know if you're out west or down south where you know it's uh, you know where the trucking industry is a lot bigger. Uh, you know, if you don't know where your, where your local, you know, where your local CB shop is, uh, you know, you need to correct that deficiency. Well, I, I do remember the, uh, I do remember the craze back then. I remember we had, uh, we ended up getting uh, the CBs for the vehicles. Uh, although, uh, although I remember my dad, he he wanted it so he could listen to the 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 activity going on, and uh, we spent a lot of time out on the road traveling and stuff, <clears throat> so that you could find out, uh, you know, the uh, any traffic or uh, road damage or anything up ahead. But he never wanted to get on it, so he always made me talk on the radio. And well, uh, you, you you don't really have to, you know, you don't really have to get on there and uh, and, and talk because, you know, as you know. You know, if you're just listening, invariably, if something's going on up the road, someone's going to get on there and, you know, and say something. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That, but, they uh, would be, that would be nonstop. Yeah. And uh, let me tell you, I mean, if you ever have any questions about what's going on in this country, 
you know, or, or any doubts, all I'm going to say is if you live near, you know, any major interstate, uh, particularly if you've got, you know, a truck stop within, say, you know, three or four miles, just just tune the 40 channel, you know, CB, CB bands, and especially, uh, you know, go and uh, go, you know, because, you know, everyone knows that channel 19 is the big road channel, but what's uh, what's not very well known is that a lot of the professional long-distance drivers, they have little private company channels. They're still on the main 40, you know, ch channel CB. This is all legal and everything, but if they want to have a more private uh, discussion amongst, you know, two drivers with the same company, they'll actually have like a channel picked out like say channel 22 or channel 30 or something like that. Uh, well, they'll actually go up to that channel and, you know, have conversations while they're, you know, uh, with each other while they're, you know, driving down the road or, you know, passing one another. And uh, you can, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, you know, truck drivers, you know, are, are traveling all across the country and they're in a really good position to observe things from, you know, wide areas and being on the road, they're, you know, they're naturally very, very observant uh, because you have to be. And, you know, there's a lot of good, uh, you get a lot of good information just listening to them as to really what's going on in the country, um, you know, you know, across the country because, yeah, they talk about it. Um, oh, yeah. you know, all you got to do is just, you know, start scanning those 40 channels. And I even think I mentioned that on my blog at, uh, you know, one point, you know. The, uh, and that's something that anybody could actually do. I mean, even if you got just a regular CB, um, you know, just one night start stepping through the channels. And uh, I know the Amron folks uh, like to run uh, Channel 3, and that's that's a good channel. Uh, we actually used that up at my camp in the Adirondacks uh, back in the day. Um, this nice quiet channel too, uh, for the most part. But uh, you know, just skip through the uh, skip through the different channels and you know and see what you hear. Especially if you're near a highway. Um, usually, the later at night, the better. Uh, I've noticed that the that the that the, the long haul drivers who who tend to go uh, during the Art Bell hours, uh, so to speak, have more interesting conversations. But like I said, <laughs> it's something anybody can do, and uh, you know, you know, it, it'll open your eyes up. Um, it'll definitely open your eyes up. Yeah, the uh, and we did spend a lot of time driving through the night, and uh, and you're absolutely right because uh, you could uh, you could certainly you could certainly hear some soap operas and stuff uh, if you listen long enough. Uh, and uh, it was very interesting. Uh, you know, there was there were times when uh, I guess uh, the folks they. Uh, they weren't, I guess, worried about. Uh, uh, they weren't worried back then. I don't know if they are now, or if there's any any regulations against it. But there would be. Uh, there certainly were some times that I uh, that we would have to change the station because uh, they might be getting a little bit vulgar. And uh, uh, but, like you said, they they be they might be. Uh, in the Texas area or New Mexico area, but the night before they'd been, uh, you know, in New York or Washington State, and uh, and they they could tell you what just happened there, and it was a it was just a very interesting uh, aspect, I think, of communications. But like you said, people have uh, if people have just the CP. That's all they have. And there are certainly ways that you can uh, enhance your ability to receive or send communications. Now, I don't know how much uh, 
I don't know anything about the antennas or anything. Anything about? I mean, I know how to make antennas, uh, patients, uh, instruction, but I don't know. Uh, is there a is there a, uh, any legal aspect to it? If you make an antenna that's too big, or if you you know if you do something that that crosses some uh, legal boundaries for FCC. Well, the big thing. Um, well, first off, uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of CB hobbyists, or as they refer to them, 11 meter band hobbyists, who generally go you know above and below the you know the standard CB channels. They call those you know uppers and lowers. And a few of them even will slide in between the standard CV channels, um, you know, with modified radios. And actually, a few of them use modified ham rigs, but we won't go there. Um, again, you know, that's illegal. But if you hear all the activity on there, it seems that the FCC, uh, you know, isn't doing much enforcement unless they hear a, uh, you know, hear an obvious complaint. Uh, I have known the FCC has busted a couple of truck stops up this way that were selling. Uh, Selling the quote export uh, end quote uh, CB radios that you know went above and below the same CB bands and for a while uh, they were getting away with selling them as uh, you know 10 meter uh, ham rigs. However, if you opened up the CB and uh, you know unplug and uh, you know plug this board into a socket that was right next to it, uh, you know with a ribbon cable, all of a sudden it went above and below the you know ham bands down into the CB and this and that and the other thing and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, you know all that stuff. Uh, you know all that stuff is you know in violation of the FCC regulations. Now, as far as uh, you know, antennas go. Uh, the one thing that points out, which is kind of interesting, considering that uh, anyone who's you know worked the uh, you know the 10 meter ham band with five watts um, on a good day with that amount of power on that frequency range, and the 10 meter ham band is literally right next to the CB band. Uh, CB is at 27 megahertz, and uh, 10 meter handband starts at 28 and goes up to 29 point something or another. Uh, I don't recall offhand, but the with five watts, you can literally work the world. I mean, the last time I was, I, I did some serious, uh, you know, uh, 10 meter activity it was actually during a contest. I was up at a friend's house up in uh, uh, Massachusetts, and. Um, the uh, you know we hooked we actually hooked up my uh, my little Yesu uh, you know uh, you know uh, FT817 little five watt ham uh, you know uh, ham ham portable uh, HF portable great little radio by the way uh, we hooked it up to Gary's uh, Antron 899 uh, CB whip and uh, you know jumped up on the uh, on the 10 meter band and there's a contest going on called CQ third time calling out on this contest, got a station in Brazil. Uh, next time I called after that, uh, wound up getting a station uh, uh, someplace else down in uh, Central or South America. Made about three or four contacts with nothing more than an Antron A99, uh, you know, broadband CB antenna. And actually the SWR did pretty good up on the handband, I have to say. But, you know, three or four shots and, uh, you know, we're talking down to South America with five watts. Um, however, on the CB band, uh, there's actually a FCC mandated limit of um, either 130 or 150 some odd miles, so it's actually illegal for you to communicate uh, with a station past that distance on the CB band because, you know, the FCC probably, you know, they gave CB as a short range, uh, you know, communication service, and uh, maybe I guess it just slipped their uh, slipped their mind that. 
five watts down on on 27 megahertz, even you know in AM mode. Not to mention you know sideband, uh, you know 20, you know five watts or it's now three watts uh, carrier on 27 megahertz. Uh, we'll go around the globe, you know, when the conditions are right. Um, and of course, at that point, it becomes completely and totally useless for local communications. But for the most part, um, you know, CB is still a, a pretty good, uh, you know, effective, you know, local and possibly even you know regional communications medium that you know doesn't require any any licensing whatsoever. And like I said, the stuff is. I mean, I go to tag sales and flea markets and find used CB radios for five, ten dollars a piece. Um, yeah, I think the last one I, I bought was uh, an old uh, unit in uh, President Grant, uh, which was actually a sideband unit, and uh, I think I paid like thirty dollars for the thing at a, at a tag sale somewhere, and it, you know, and it, and it worked. Um, and you know, that's what I've been, you know, that's what I've been using. So yeah, I mean, the equipment's you know dirt common, and you know, it doesn't require a license as far as you know antennas go. Um, you, know, you can put up as big of an antenna as you want, uh, but again, you know, legally you're not supposed to communicate out past that hundred some odd mile, uh, hundred some odd mile limit. Uh, but um, the big thing that people run into with CBs, um, with them not getting much in the way of distance, uh, actually does involve the antenna. Um, half wavelength, uh, which is your standard resonant. Uh, antenna frequency. Um, the way they do it in, in, in radio um, is there's a formula. It's 468 divided by the uh, frequency in uh, in megahertz will give you the length of a, of a half-wave antenna or, or a dipole. So if you do 468 divided by 27, you actually get a half-wave length of 17.3333333 at extra. Um, to uh, you know, as an antenna length, so that's little 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 shy of uh, you know of 20 feet. Um, if you go with uh, one of the elements on that, which would be a quarter wavelength, because you're doing a quarter wave ground plane, which is you know the classic um, you know entry level CB antenna, you divide that uh, by two, which gives you uh, let's call it 17 uh, eight and a half feet, um, which means that you have an eight and a half foot element. Uh, sticking up in four eight and a half foot elements going out at your four cardinal directions out from the side. Uh, antenna has a bit of a footprint. If you were to go with one of those, you know, half wave, you know, single whip antennas like the Antron A99, you're talking just a, you know, 17 foot, uh, you know, fiberglass pole uh, that you, you know you'd clamp to a mast or a chimney or, or what have you. Um, that's what you really need in a base station to. You know, to, to really get out, you know, to really use the, you know, the radio to its full potential. Likewise, you want that, you know, that 18-foot, uh, you know, that 8-foot antenna, you know, off the back of your car hooked up to a good ground plane. Uh, not the usual, you know, tiny 2-foot high mag mount antennas that, you know, come with your emergency CB kit uh, that you pick up, you know, at, at Walmart or whatever. Uh, I mean, an antenna like that on that frequency, yes, yeah, resonant, but it's so inefficient that you're lucky to get a mile or two uh, out of it. But all of a sudden, if you actually put a real antenna uh, on it, um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, CB takes on, uh, you know, a life of its own. And if you, you know, divide, uh, um, you know, 17.3 uh, uh, by 2, you actually get, um, give me a second here, um, as soon as this thing decides to cooperate with me, uh, 17.3 divided by two 
is actually 8.65. So that's a quarter wavelength on CB. And if you multiply 8.65 by 12, you get 103.8, which is you know your classic. You know they actually call it 102 inch uh, whip. Uh, you know they make it a little shorter, uh, so it resonates a little better on the higher end of the, uh, of the CB band. But that's the classic 102 inch stainless steel whip that. You hook up, you know, to the side of your, you know, you mount to the side of your car with a big old coil spring on uh, on the bottom of it, so uh, you know it doesn't uh, doesn't rip off, rip, rip your, uh, you know, rip, rip your quarter panel uh, open uh, when you hit a tree trunk with it. Uh, but that's what you actually need to uh, to run, you know, a CB. Although I have to say that, um, you know, as far as shortened antennas go, if you go with a Fire Stick K40 or a Wilson. Uh, you know, 1,000, which you can get in any reputable, you know, truck shop or, or CB shop, but uh, you'll still do, uh, you know, you'll still do pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good for yourself uh, with that, even though it's a shortened antenna. Uh, you know, they, they do work uh, really, really well. I was running a, uh, I was running a K40, uh, you know, for a little while and, uh, you know, had no, had no issues with it. Um, you know, good antennas. So, but this is stuff that, you know, doesn't cost a whole heck of a lot of money. I think a good CB antenna is going to set you back maybe, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks. Uh, and, um, you know, and of course, you know, if you already have the CB floating around, you're, you know, you're already, uh, you know, you're already good to go there. And uh, just doing a quick Google search here on K40 antennas and, uh, oh, wow, look at this. Uh, here we go. K40 antennas accessories. Um, yeah, K40 antennas about eh, $55. Um, so that's uh, you know that's reasonable, and they have a really nice picture here of uh, K40 on the back of uh, on the back of uh, some some Dodge that uh, that looks like General Lee. So there we go. That, that's an endorsement if I ever heard one. Uh, but that's you know again you know you know being you know going going into more serious tack you know it's all about the antenna uh, you know when you're dealing with a low power like that. Uh, now a lot of the stuff that you're that you're putting out, a lot of folks probably aren't going to get. Uh, and if they are, that's good. But uh, a lot of the stuff people probably aren't going to get, which means that if you if you think that being able to communicate uh, with other folks in your area uh, is an important thing, and you know this doesn't like I said at the beginning of the show, you don't have to. This doesn't have to be an issue that you connect with, uh, you know, end of the world and comets and aliens and everything else. It could be at any time where you're experiencing any type of cessation of services event that you need to speak to somebody else for something. If the electricity's out, if your phones are out, if the if whatever method that you're currently using for communications, if something happens and those are out. If you have the ability to communicate in an alternative method, then that's what you want to be able to do. Now, yeah, exactly. If you if you don't understand uh, some of the stuff that uh, that Sparks is talking about, then there's two things you can do. One is uh, to begin to educate yourself uh, about it. And I believe Sparks, you said that when I was talking to you that uh, one of the best things folks can do. Is begin uh, and it doesn't take very long. Begin studying and get their get their basic license. Yeah, well, basically, I I look at it this way. All right, when I was going through Army basic training, they basic they they 
instilled three very, very important concepts uh, uh, to us. They were shoot, move, and communicate. All right? On the battlefield, if you can do those three things, shoot, move, and communicate, um, you're good to go. All right? You'll at least be able to, you know, to get somewhere, and, you know, you won't lose your effectiveness. Now, um, so we're talking basically about, you know, the communications aspect here. Now, when I went through basic training, which was admittedly 20-some-odd years ago, um, maybe even 30, so long ago, it doesn't matter, but when I went through basic training, everyone, doesn't matter whether you were, you know, a special forces guy, you know, going for special forces training later, or whether you were, you know, an 88 Mike, you know, a wheeled vehicle operator, everyone got certain basic instruction in communications, right? You learn the phonetic alphabet. You learned how to do proper radio telephone procedure so you could communicate effectively. You learned how to provide reports, uh, like through the, you know, the famous thing, which I'm always pushing, the salute report, where they talk about you know, size, uh, activity, location, uniforms, time, you know, and equipment. Um, and that basically, you know, provides, you know, every soldier is a sensor. That basically enables you to effectively communicate what you're observing out in the field, you know, uh, you know to, uh, to higher elements. Um, so we learned all that basic reporting and, and radio telephone procedure. Uh, also learned the basics of how, to, uh, of how to operate field phones. And we also uh, got really, really basic instruction on the squad radio at the time, which uh, back in those days was the uh, uh, the PRC uh, 77, uh, which was actually a um, you know a little two watt radio, actually a five watt radio. Uh, they've been using it ever since Vietnam, um, and it was a little it was a five watt uh, VHF tactical radio, and that was basically the squad radio of, of choice at the time. Um, thing weighed about I don't know 15 20 pounds. Um, so not a very popular thing to carry if you were the radio telephone operator because it was just an extra 20 pounds of, you know, of electronics you had to lug around. And you had to take fairly extra good batteries. care of it, even though they were fairly rugged, and extra batteries and all that. But what I'm, you know, point I'm, I'm trying to make here is that everybody, all right, who went through basic training, no matter who they were, no matter what their MOS, you know, military occupational specialty was, learned those basic communications tasks. Right. All right. Now, all right, everyone right, should learn how to do, you know, how to, how to talk on the radio and how to do, you know, proper reports. That's basic. And depending on what's coming down the pike in the near future, that's going to be essential in order to keep people in touch and, you know, to let people make effective decisions. Um, you know, the time for, you know, taking random pictures of, uh, you know, clapped out DMRO Humvees on a rail line and, you know, Saying their saying their UN forces, uh, you know, going to the internment camp is over because, you know, that stuff has to stop like yesterday. Uh, yeah. You know, people have to start, you know, factually, concisely, and accurately, you know, reporting stuff they see. Um, so the rest of us, uh, you know, don't freak out too much. Um, likewise, you know, basic squad radio type stuff. And believe it or not, if you can figure out how to use your, your dumb phone, then, uh, you know, then you could probably figure out at least, you know, the basics of operating, you know, your common license-free radios, your little FRS, um, you know, handheld radio sets, um, you know, and, and, and your CB gear. And I even dare say you could probably figure out how to, um, 
you know, how to run a two-meter ham rig, because uh, those are pretty turnkey as well. Um, so that's basic communications tasks, you know, running, you know, basic reporting, uh, basic, you know, radio telephone procedure, and the operation of, you know, squad radios. Now, past that, you have different, you know, specialties in, in communications. Uh, you might be a, you know, radio telephone operator, um, and uh, they actually changed the MOSs, but um, uh, back in my day, it was like a 31 Bravo or 31 Charlie. Um, I think it's like a 25-something now. Now, those guys know a little more communication stuff. They actually get more into the base radios. They start dealing with, you know, some of the lower frequency stuff down in HF, your shortwave sets. And then in these days, of course, they're also talking a lot about, you know, computer networking and digital communications. Um, and in a separate path, you also have guys who are the signal maintainers. And those are the guys who don't necessarily operate the radios, um, but they go and, um, you know, they go and fix them. Um, and that would be, you know, a signal, you know, a signal maintainer, you know, at, at whatever level of maintenance. Um, and again, there's different levels. You know, at one end you have the unit level maintenance guy, which used to be called the 31 Victor. I don't even know what they call him now. Um, and he just did basic things uh, with the radios. You know, they could be repaired at unit level. And uh, then you went all the way up to, you know, to depot and, you know, organizational level stuff. And those are actually the guys that whipped out the soldering irons and, you know, got down on the circuit boards. Um, you know, it's a great, you know, it was a great way that worked. And, you know, that's how, you know, we would, you know, wind up going about doing it. You might not total, you know, communication guru, uh, but then again, you might not have to be if you have other, you know, specialties. I wouldn't expect um, the local, um, your, your, your local field doc uh, to know, you know, a lot about uh, electronics. Um, However, a good friend of mine is actually a special forces medic and went and has his ham license uh, extra class and actually does his own soldering and radio repair. Um, so, yeah, I guess you could. But at the very least, you have to know the basics um, and have a, you know, have a buddy, you know, someone in your group who, you know, is a designated, you know, electronics, you know, technical support guru. And then that guy would probably, you know, want to know a little bit more as far as, you know, how to fix radios and maybe a few of the, you know, tips and tricks, uh, you know, to get things uh, tweaked up a little bit. Uh, and he would be the guy that would help you get your, you know, your basic radio set up together um, so that, um, you know, so that, it, so that it'll work. And, you know, he, he'd basically be your, you know, your unit combo guy. Um, and then there's the other, uh, you know, then there's the other thing that, uh, you know, there's the other philosophy uh, that says that, um, you know, hey, if you're out there, you know, alone and you're, you know, you're a lone wolf, um, you're going to have to learn as much as you can. Um, I personally um, advocate uh, for everybody the latter, um, you know, the, the, the latter approach because anything that you learn is only going to help you in the end. All right, and, you know, believe it or not, most normal people out in the real world are, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, good, uh, good good, generalists, you know, with a little bit of everything, uh, good at gold American ingenuity, you know. They may not be a mechanic, but they can at least fix, you know, a few things on their car, and they may not be able to do an engine swap, but, you know, at least they could, you know, you know do, do some stuff if, you know, something breaks uh, that they could get to, you know, with basic tools. 
And, you know, the same thing, uh, you know, applies with, uh, you know, with radio stuff. Uh, you may not have a, uh, you know, a complete surface mount, uh, you know, surface mount soldering station, uh, you know, in, in your basement so you can, you know, fix some of these modern radios. But if you have a little basic electronics knowledge and you know how to use a voltmeter, um, you can at least, you know, take a look at it, uh, especially if you're working with older, simpler radios. Um, you can at least take a look at it and have a good idea of what's wrong with it, and you might even be able to fix it. Or at the very least, if you're out in the field and, uh, you know, with your with your HT and you smack a tree with a giant, you know, with a, you know, with, with a one of the long, uh, you know, two-meter whip antennas on it and snap off the, uh, you know, the antenna connector, you at least want to be able to open up your radio and solder that connector back on, uh, you know, when you get back, when you get back home, uh, you know, so you're back in the game. But, right. Uh, and you like, know, I like mean, you were saying yeah. just a minute ago that that the if you were if you're working with a group and and I yeah, I'll just say that if you guys listen to the show, you know that I that I, that I'll tell you as I have over and over again that uh, that's what you should be doing. You should be putting together a, a group of folks uh, and. And they, they, I'm not talking about putting together, uh, you know, your own personal uh, uh, combat team or anything like that. I'm just talking about getting together a group of folks who are willing to assist each other in times of need, in times of uh, uh, natural, man-made disaster, cessation of services, stuff like that. Uh, you, as a as a single person, as an individual, is, are, are not going to to be able to handle all of the all of the stuff that's going to be needed. So you're going to have to to work within a group in order to be successful. And the time to to find the members of the group and put together a good group is not in the middle of something, uh, some disaster or something. The time to do it is now. The same way, the same way that with getting gear and, and everything else, getting uh, education, the time to do it is now. When you can sandwich it in between the rest of the events of your life, not when you're trying to figure out how to do something and stay alive and eat and everything else. So as you're going about putting together your group, I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to to be looking for those individuals who are either willing to learn and make this uh, their priority uh, for their contribution to the group, or, and there are tons of these guys out there, uh, they're just—they look just like you and I. They don't have uh, antennas from their ears or anything else. They look just like the rest of us. But, uh, but like I was saying earlier, for the most part, once these, once somebody has clicked on their desire to to, to dive head first in a communications world like this, they become pretty much combo freaks, and uh, tons of them out there. And uh, uh, we've got uh, three in our group, and and they're very knowledgeable about this stuff, and. And try and get uh, someone either already in your group to go in this direction, or uh, or find somebody who has these skills and abilities and add them to your group. You know, you were talking earlier about the, well, like with the military and with the the basic uh, training that they get in communications. And you're right because you know people like I don't think that people understand that. Uh, that if you're in if you're in the military and you're and you need to talk to somebody else, you don't just you can't just grab uh, any radio 
and start yelling, hey, come get me, or I need help, or something like that. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, it's a very structured setup. You have, uh matter of fact, they, uh, I'm not exactly sure how they do it now, so, and I don't feel like uh, me telling something, me telling how they did it uh, uh, 35 years ago is going to be any kind of security violation, but... Uh, uh, you know, they issued uh, us the books, the uh, CEOI books. These are about one inch thick, sometimes up to like three inches thick books. And uh, this would tell you, it would be like a uh, like a phone book. And it would tell you what your assigned radio frequencies were for that, uh, however long that, that CEOI was in effect. It could be, uh, you know, a week or it could be longer, depending on, on how how or why it was issued. And uh, you would have a certain radio frequency that you would use for that day, or, and uh, and you had to, if you were entering into communications for the first time, you'd have to you'd have to introduce yourself to the net, and then you'd have to ask for permission to enter it. You'd give your name, your you know your specific uh, radio call sign, and then they would you to prove that you were you by uh, answering uh, some questions and uh, and you would have to you would have to answer questions in a coded fashion to prove that it was you and you were who you were and then you would have to use the call signs that you were given the letters that you're given that's why when you hear somebody like on a, a movie or something saying uh, this is uh, alpha 26 or something then that is your name uh, on that radio net when they hear those call letters A26, that means they, they know who you are because that that those letters and numbers will go directly back to to you to exactly who you are within that net. And somebody just jumping on the radio and talking uh, is not going to get they're not going to they're not going to get what they need unless somebody knows who they are. So there's a whole procedure for for talking on the radios within the military. And I'm, I'm assuming that there's the same kind of procedures in uh, on civilian radios, right? Um, basically, on, on, on civilian radios, um, you know, it's a, uh, well, you know, talking about, you know, on the, on the, on the land mobile, uh, you know, business, um, a lot of the radios are programmed up with unique identifiers that, you know, key up and... Uh, you know, and, and ID them. Um, so essentially, if you um, you know, if you come up, I mean, if you come up, for, you know, in a true emergency, and you just happen to be, you know, assuming you're a licensed land mobile user, um, if you happen to come up on the you know quote wrong frequency, well, it's going to be one that's programmed in your radio anyway, so it's not exactly a wrong frequency. But let's say you're, uh, you know, you're taught you accidentally, you know, you have a, you you have a. a and a memorandum of understanding and an interoperability agreement where you can go on the, the certain the, next, the town next to you's uh, you know you know operations channel you know their main channel um, at that point you know they're going to know who you are and say oh okay and tell you you're you know you're on the wrong dispatch channel and you know if they're if they're if they're helpful uh, they'll they'll forward off the information because if it's an emergency you know they want that to move as quickly as possible uh, otherwise they'll just tell you you know to turn you know turn to, you know, turn to the proper channel. Um, usually it's the former rather than the latter because, uh, you know, 
if, if someone's in, in such a such an emergency that you know they're on the wrong channel, they're not gonna you know boot them off. They're just gonna you know engage in the right. typical interoperability you know mutual aid procedures. Um, so things run a little differently. But if you just you know pop up on a um, if you just pop up on a net and your uh, you know your radio's um, you know MDC code is uh, you know is not coming up. Uh, you know, there's a good chance you uh, you know you'll wind up uh, you know being uh, you know being ignored. Uh, however, it's um, you know if you uh, you know with that said, and I know a lot of you know amateur radio operators run a um, you know run modified radios that can go on the public safety frequencies. If you jumped up on a you know public safety channel with a legitimate Mayday uh, signal, which would be indicative of a you know life or limb threatening emergency. They would probably take your call, respond to it, and then after everything, you know, settled down, you'd probably have some explaining to do after that, but they would probably wind up, uh, in all honesty, acting on that, you know, life-threatening emergency call, and then they just, you know, sort the rest out later. Um, right, right. There's actually an FCC regulation that states that amateur radio operators can use any frequency or radio communications method at their disposal uh, for, you know, emergency, you know, for, for signaling, uh, for assistance in the event of a, you know, life or limb threatening emergency. Um, I know a couple of, uh, you know, I've heard stories that went on, uh, on, on, on both sides of the spectrum with that. Um, I've heard of one town that, you know, knew the amateur radio operators involved because they were involved with the local, you know, MCOM agencies and, you know, took the call and, you know, that was the end of it because uh, it was an emergency. And, I've heard of uh, you know one one case out in California, um, and of course it, you know would be California, uh, where someone did that, and the sheriff's office came and uh, you know uh, confiscated their radio for uh, you know illegally transmitting on their frequency, and I don't even think the uh, the sheriff's office would be able to do that by federal law because they're not charged with uh, you know in, in enforcing federal radio regulations. But um, I think the kid who did it at the time was like 17, and he was a licensed ham. And he couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't bring anyone up on, uh, you know, couldn't bring up a local ham repeater to call in the emergency. Um, <laughs> nowadays, nowadays everyone. This was a few years back. Nowadays everyone has cell phones, uh, so you know they just pick up the cell phone and call 911, uh, right. and that's it. But if we're talking, you know, in, in a grid down, you know, scenario where things, you know, where where your normal means of communications are disrupted, you know, for whatever reason. You're gonna wanna, you know, at least have an idea, uh, you know, of, of where to transmit. Like up here, um, you know, up up here in the in the unconstitution state, uh, we have, uh, you know, we have a, a rather thriving, uh, you know, Aries Amateur Radio Emergency Service Organization, um, and uh, you know, there are, there are several repeaters that are, you know, that will go active, uh, you know, in the event of a national of a nat natural disaster with, you know, Aries operations. Um, those act, they actually do have base stations down at local, uh, you know, public safety access points that will be manned by amateurs for, you know, health and ostentatively for health and welfare traffic. But if you jumped out an emergency call on, you know, one of those, uh, you know, Aries repeaters while it was active uh, during a disaster, um, a public safety agency is going to hear about it, um, you know, uh, right away because it's just a matter of the Aries operator. You know, walking, walking three feet with the message over to the public safety dispatcher, and you know, sending a unit out to your location if uh, you know if one's available. Um, if one's available, um, 
they might be, you know, otherwise occupied. Um, that stuff, you know, at that point you start getting into, you know, interoperability, you know, amongst different groups, uh, you know, for our applications. And that really requires you to get to know the people, you know, who are next door to you, um, you know, the next town or the next county over. Uh, determine if they're actually someone you want to work with uh, and are, you know, fairly decent and trustworthy and then come up with, you know, some agreement, you know, saying that, uh, you know, the interoperability, you know, channel for, you know, for this area, you know, between these different groups is going to be, you know, CB channel 3 or, you know, maybe, you know, FRS channel 1 or, you know, something like that or, you know, the following ham frequency, you know, 14655.55 megahertz on the 2 meter band. Um, so this way everyone, you know, knows, you know, ahead of time, you know, it's all on the same sheet of music and, uh, this way, if you know something actually happens, you you know you already have it planned out to say, okay, you know if we need assistance, you know we're going to go on uh, on this channel, and then you have to have the you know the equipment to actually you know be monitoring those interoperability frequencies, uh, you know that you've you've come out with because if you're talking with your people, you know your little group on one channel, uh, then you're not going to be listening to the uh, you know to the interoperability channel for a request you know from the neighboring group. Uh, and that's when you start, you know, actually putting together a, you know, you know, uh, an operations center, you know, with the, you know, various pieces of communications equipment to, uh, you know, serve various purposes. Right, and that's what, that's certainly one of the things that we're hoping to get out of our course. And let me tell you guys real quick that uh, that Spark has uh, several classes going on uh, across the country right now. There's one in uh, Waterbury, Connecticut in uh, uh, October, and then one in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, November 8th through the 11th. And then we'll be having one yeah. in our facilities here in December, December uh, 6th and 7th. And yes, I... and this is, uh, the, you, you can listen to the stuff here that we're, that we're talking about on uh, the radio show here. You can go and and read uh, Spark's blog. You can get uh, tons of education all over. <clears throat> but nothing's going to replace uh, going to a, uh, a course like this and uh, and having the instruction delivered to you in a course and being able to, to be interactive with the instructor. So I really advise you to seek out one of the courses I just mentioned and attend that course so you can begin putting together your communications uh, plan for yourself, for your group. It can be just you. You can be doing it just as a hobby, and this is going to help you. Or it can be you, you with, for your local group to, to do it. Or you as your uh, – if you, maybe you live out rurally and you want to be able to, to help uh, 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 dis, uh, not disperse, uh, dispatch uh, – with uh, with getting people to the right addresses for emergencies and stuff like that, regardless of why, you're going to need to to get some instruction in this to get yourself started. And the best way to do it is going to be to go to one of these courses. Now, that is exactly what we're hoping to get in our course. A lot of the folks that are attending the December course with Battle Road USA are are folks, friends who. Uh, who want to be able to do what you're talking about, and that is we want to get uh, we want uh, some good instruction on 
on the proper gear to use. Uh, some folks have gear already, some don't. So we'd like to make sure that before we go out, before everybody starts out going out and getting gear, you know, we'd like to hear from somebody who who knows uh, who can give us some uh, good instruction on it. Besides our own guys, uh, we'd like to uh, to get some idea about the things that we need to get, what we do need, what we don't need, uh, and then to be able to set up a a system where we communicate with each other, like you're talking about, the, in order to assist each other, and start uh, and set that up now when we can do it uh, in a leisurely uh, hobby fashion and uh, and learn how to do it, how to how to run the communications and uh, and get it set up now. So that's one of the whole reasons that we're that we're having you come down so that we can start doing that. Now, uh, I had a question. On, I had a question. I said, and the next time I ask him a question, I'm going to ask this question. And I got sidetracked by by reading some stuff on your on your blog. But uh, the, the during the uh, a grid down situation, uh, we, one of the things that we could assume might be happening is that we're not going to be getting uh, power supplied from our local power company. I mean, that's something that... Correct. This happens in, that happens in regular times, you know, regular, normal, everyday uh, occurrences. You'll have power outages for whatever reason. You'll have trees on the lines. You'll have the, the companies having to do some type of maintenance work or... Uh, or you could have a storm, anything like that. You could be your power could be out, and certainly that could be elevated to a level where you, where if you have a a large storm regionally, or a snowstorm or something like that, where you might be out of power for a decent amount of time. So if you're out of power, if you're out of power supplied by uh, by your utility company, you have to consider some other means of being able to continue your communications. And, of course, there's there are generators and stuff like that, but uh, I'm looking at your site uh, under the category batteries, and uh, can you talk to folks just for a second about uh, about some of the, the power needs that they're going to have uh, to run the equipment? Uh, actually, yeah, I could, but I'm going to uh, actually take a, take a step back uh, even further than that, and uh, basically talk about uh, you know some of the considerations that uh, you want to. Uh, and this is these are things that I actually go into the course, uh, go into you know uh, detail uh, in the course. But there are certain, um, like I said, uh, considerations that you need to uh, you know take into you know uh, take into account uh, you know you know with, with your you know communications gear. Um, I'm actually. This is you know this is straight out of the course actually, and this is a big part of what we teach in the the active portion with the you know communications monitoring. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned, um, you know, right off the bat, is that conventional grid power um, you know systems are possibly not going to be up, or at the very very. Uh, you know, at the very, very least, uh, are going to be uh, unreliable. So at that point, that means that any 
any power infrastructure that you provide has to be, you know, it, it's it's all on you. All right now, you know, some people have uh, you know generators, um, and um, you know varying um, you know varying uh, you know types and you know capacities. Uh, other people might be you know running um, you know running is you know running batteries, batteries. Um, you have to uh, you know you have to figure out a means of you know charging them and you know keeping them uh, you know uh, you know operational. Um, it's uh, but um, you know un under the course the second thing that you know I talk about after the importance of you know having an adequate communications monitoring set up is the fact that your gear um, or at least your main your your primary secondary and tertiary uh, equipment um, because as you know you know one is none and two is one so you should have at least three um, you know primary secondary and tertiary. Um, your operational equipment has to be capable of operating independent of the power grid. All right. Um, the lack of consistent, reliable electrical utility service in, in many grid-down scenarios basically means you have to produce your own power. Um, those are things that uh, you know they can be as uh, you know it can be as sophisticated as you know uh, you know a 10 kW uh, you know Onan generator. Uh, you know, sitting on the side of your house to something as simple as a, you know, one of these little, um, you know, uh, 17 amp hour, 12 volt uh, Centec, uh, you know, portable power packs uh, that you pick up from Harbor Freight. Um, but you need, you know, some way of, of generating your own power, you know, in, in, in some manner. Um, and that is going to define what um, you know that's actually going to define a significant amount of, of, of your communications choices uh, because if you know if you don't have the power to run it you're you know it is useless to you uh, right. consequently you know for most of us the limited quantity of electricity from self-generation uh, means that you should use the lowest amount of RF power uh, needed to establish, you know, reliable communications. Now, one of the things that uh, you know that I that I'm really big in in ham radio is a uh, mode of operation, and actually it's a philosophy of operation uh, called QRP. And QRP is low power operation, traditionally, um, you know, five watts or less. Uh, I believe the actual um, definition of QRP. Um, in the amateur radio community is either uh, you know, um, no more than 10 watt or 5 watt limit um, you know in amateur radio operations and that's uh, you know that's power output uh, coming from the uh, coming from the you know coming from your transmitter um, most amateur radio operators are typically you know running um, you know are running about a hundred a nominal 100 watt uh, radio on shortwave uh, QRP operators, uh, well, it depends on the philosophy. Um, most of them um, think it's, uh, you know, most of them think it's uh, five watts or less for QRP. Uh, some think it's, uh, you know, think that 10 watts or less is acceptable. And uh, there are actually a, a very uh, a subset of QRPers called uh, QRPP, and they use power outputs of less than one watt. 
And we actually, at the last Kinetic Communications class, had a ham radio operator bring up a, I think it was like a 20 or 30 milliwatt uh, ham transceiver, Morse code, uh, CW, uh, on the 80 meter amateur band. And the thing was the size, uh, it was built quite literally inside an Altoids tin. That's a radio with a with a really, I mean, depending on the frequency, um, you know, with a simple like dipole antenna made out of, you know, really thin, uh, you know, messenger wire, uh, like um, the uh, the plastic coated steel wire that you use for uh, deep sea fishing leads. Uh, you could literally make a station that fits in a BDU pocket uh, with, a, you know, with a small, um, you know, NIMI battery pack. And some of those, you know, some of those AA batteries now are hitting like two, 3,000 milliamps of juice for the lithium ion packs. And you could have a nice compact station that fits in a BDU pocket. Wow. Um, wow. You know, that'll, that, when the conditions are right, will, uh, you know, will get you, uh, you know, will get you around the world. But for what we're doing, you don't necessarily have to, you know, talk around the world. Um, but um, so basically, the you know the fact that you're generating your own electricity and the fact that you know you're going to have a limited amount of it uh, in the grand scheme of things means you should you know probably aim for you know low power uh, operation. Um, likewise, um, the fact that in many scenarios you'll probably be operating in field locations, uh, not necessarily in your house or you know possibly from a retreat location. Uh, or out in the field somewhere, depending on you know what your particular situation is, uh, you want stuff that you can you know that's you know at least you know portable uh, you know portable or transportable, uh, something you could throw that's not going to take up a whole lot of space in a rucksack, and uh, you know that you can carry with you along with you know the rest of your gear. Again, that's why you know QRP that 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 actually applies to uh, you know to most QRP radios because there are actually amateur radio operators. Not necessarily prepper or three percenter types, although I suspect a few of them might be, uh, you know, covert uh, covert preppers or three percenters. Um, right. That's just between you and me, our, our audience, and the NSA analyst listening in on the line. Um, but there are amateur radio operators who actually do adventure radio stuff, something called SOTA, Summits on the Air, where they climb to various mountaintops and operate portable. Uh, and they basically backpack all their equipment, batteries, antennas, everything out there, set them up run for a weekend, maybe do a little fly fishing afterwards and, uh, you know, and call it a day. Um, you know, there are actually amateur radio operators that do that. And, you know, nothing for nothing, I mean, that's field training. I mean, you may right. not be dressing up in, you may not be dressing up in multicam and uh, packing your M forgery uh, with you while you're doing it, but at least you're hiking and backpacking out into the middle of, uh, you know, uh, you know the wilderness, and uh, you know setting up your radios and running with them, and seeing how far, uh, you know, how far out you get, you know, with limited power and antennas. That's, you know, that's important training right there, and that's stuff that, um, you know, again, if anyone comes up to you, um, you know, you're, you're just a ham radio operator, going to do a little operating out in the woods, a little camping, you know, maybe pull a couple of, uh, you know, brookies out of the nearby stream for dinner, and you know, call it good, and you know, people do that in this country, you know, every day during, you know, during the warmer parts of the year and probably all the time, uh, depending on what your fishing season and climate's like. But, you know, no, it doesn't, doesn't raise a single eyebrow. And, you know, here you are getting your training and, you know, you have what we call a, you know, a cover for action. You know, you're just right. a crazy ham radio operator and fly fisherman. 
Yeah, and you mentioned they, they weren't wearing they weren't wearing multi cams. And I try and tell people all the time, look, if you want to draw attention to yourself now, in the future, in grid down, whatever, if you want to draw attention to yourself, the best way to do it is to wear some multi cam. You're gonna you're you're gonna get everybody in the world focusing laser beam like on you. But uh, I think that that's exactly right. The the Doing this, doing this as a hobby, doing and 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 developing your own FTXs and stuff like that, and uh, it reminds me of, of course, of actual uh, of actual stuff that that we've done. Uh, I was a member of a, a long range reconnaissance patrol unit, and of course, our area of operations was uh, was supposed to be. I believe that our specific unit was uh, responsible for like uh, ten, from ten to eight hundred miles behind the fort edge of the battle area that we were going to be working in. So our communications had to be, uh, they had to be pretty, uh, pretty uh, dependable and long range. And uh, of course, we used Morse code uh, with the uh, the radios because at the time that was the only way you were going to get. Uh, uh, any distance was with uh, the shortwave, and we, uh, whenever I had a message that we had to send out, because Morse code is so tedious and it takes such a long time, then uh, we had the devices, and I, I think I told you about this, we had the code bursters, and that's a device yeah. where you would tap out, tap the message out into a device, and it would be actually physically wound up, and then you would uh, establish communications and then turn this thing on, and it would just sound like a just sound like a buzz, and uh, that you'd, way you'd be able to transmit the the Morse code, you know, your message, and then they would take it, they would record it, slow it down, play it back, and then uh, decode the message. But even then, uh, because of the and this was thirty some years, thirty five years ago, even then the the ability for the enemy to radio direction find you was so good back then that even just uh, even just 60 seconds of live transmission we figured was enough to get us burned in half. So, and when it came time to send in reports, I chopped the team in half, and either I myself or the uh, uh, the assistant uh, patrol leader would. Take the combo guy off. You'd usually you travel about uh, two to three kilometers away. Try and catch uh, any kind of uh, elevation that we could. Like you said, uh, go to the top of a nearby hill or something. Which is usually a bad idea in itself because that's where everybody hangs out. But that was the best way to make sure that you're getting uh, that you're going to get some elevation in order to transmit. And then they would uh, send the message, and then we would uh, all meet at a determined meeting point further on down the trail. But that's how we would run our communications and uh, send in reports and stuff. Uh, now, uh, and I think you and I were talking about this, that, that it's gotten their ability to find you has gotten even better now so that uh, they don't even need the 60 seconds. Uh, they just need Three a couple seconds. of seconds now, right? Yes. Well, it's uh, on the VHF bands, you know, where your squad radios are, uh, it's about three seconds. Um, it's uh, probably a little bit longer down on, uh, down on shortwave. Um, 
they actually do have um, shortwave, um, you know, direction finding, uh, you know, systems uh, out there. Um, however, I was actually, um, if you go and, um, you know, I was doing a little, you know, searching on the internet because, you know, it's uh, it's my thing, uh, you know, doing research for the next book, and of course, you know, for my for my upcoming uh, my upcoming fiction novel, uh, Fifty Shades of Mosby, and they there actually is right now uh some grant money uh out there uh from the feds uh for developers of um HF radio direction finding systems um that are going you now that that will work on um Envis uh, communications which is uh near vertical incident skywave and Envis is a big thing that we talk about you know with with down communications shortwave signals uh, bounce off a section of our atmosphere called the ionosphere, and they do a hop or two, and they wind up and you know by having these signals bounce off the ionosphere, you can get you know worldwide communications. Um, when you're doing that, and a lot of hams who are into DXing, uh, you know, are into seeing how far out they can go, they typically want their angle of radiation takeoff to be as low as possible, as close to the horizon as they can get it. Uh, this way, it bounces further out and comes down, you know, a greater distance. The downside to that is that there's a region known as the skip distance where the signal basically travels over you. And if you have a station from roughly 30, 40 miles out, 20 miles out, depending on the antenna, to however, you know, whatever distance, you know, 1,000 or so, if they're in that skip distance, they're not going to hear you. So what you do instead is you basically have an antenna design called an NVIS antenna, which focuses your signal straight up. Comes up, comes down. Now with the signal bouncing straight back down on top of you, um, you no longer have a skip distance, and NVIS communication will give you uh, reliable communications, consistent reliable communications out to about three to 500 mile radius of you. Uh, which is more than adequate for, you know, extended regional networks. I mean, I run an NVIS antenna here up at the house on on 40 meters during the day, and I have no problems from my, you know, uh, location up here uh, talking up into Maine, talking down into the Carolinas, down into Georgia, uh, talking out to Ohio, Maryland. Basically, I have the entire, like, northeastern um, you know, and, um, you know, uh, upper Midwest region pretty much covered, you know, for communications, uh, you know, with Endus. Um, and, of course, what's, you know, really nice is that that's on one of the lower frequencies, and if I, uh, you know, if I go up to a higher frequency with my antenna tuner, say up to 20 meters, uh, which is around 14 megahertz as opposed to 7 during the day, uh, that Endus antenna, due to its, uh, you know, design and, and placement, now has a a low angle of takeoff, and I'm able to talk to maritime mobiles out in the Texas Gulf, all with the same radio and the same antenna. And a lot of that is just knowing, you know, what free, you know, what antenna design to use and what frequency to use at, you know, what time of the day. Um, and all this stuff's already been figured out. Um, you know, it's, you know, pretty pretty common, you know, general general knowledge. And they actually even have beacon stations out there that. Um, you can listen to that will give you an idea of where you know where where the bend is open to. It's real really interesting, um, 
if you do a lot of uh, shortwave listening, what they call utility listening, which is non-broadcast shortwave, uh, like you know, on the aeronautical and maritime channels, you'll hear several uh, single-digit CW beacons. And um, they're basically one of two types. Actually, a few of them are really, really ultra-low power beacons that are put up by hobbyists. They're basically bootleggers uh, putting these solar-powered beacons up in the middle of nowhere uh, because they can. Um, and the others are actually Russian military beacons that they use to basically say, okay, you know, if you tune to this frequency at such and such a day and you hear this beacon identifier on this frequency, you know that that particular band is open to that particular location and that's what you're going to use to talk to, you know, to talk over there. Um, and it's, uh, you know, even in this day of, you know, satellite communications, uh, you know, the Russians over on the other side, uh, you know, of the, of the pond there are still using, uh, you know, relatively, uh, you know, primitive, um, you know, HF communications to do a lot of their work. Um, and, you know, something as simple as just having, you know, uh, a beacon transmitter uh, out there, you know, sending an identifier, and you know that, you know, this beacon, this ID beacon on this frequency, you know, is at this location. So if you hear it, you know, the band is open there. Um, but uh, we can go on all night about, you know, various things, uh, you know, with HF communications. And we do get into a lot of that, you know, a lot of the more, uh, you know, practical aspects on the, you know, on the grid down communications course. Right. Well, the, we, we kind of got off on a little bit of a, a tangent there because we were talking about the, the power sources and stuff like that. And, yeah. And I was, uh, uh, and, I thought what you, the advice and information you gave, I thought was excellent because that's exactly what that's exactly what people need to hear and understand. And this has to, they have got to understand this before they go out and buy the gear because I know there's there there is a, a in my uh, my recent attempts to educate myself. I know there's tons of gear out there, and some of the yeah. gear when I'm looking at the power uh, requirements. It really, it really sucks it up. It really eats up power. And yeah, if you don't have that power, then that thing is essentially going to starve, and you, it will be useless to you. So you have to think about once you once you bought this monster, you're going to have to figure out a way to feed it. And mm-hmm. I know that we have when we first started out. Of course, we started out with a very basic. When we first started putting the group together several years ago, uh, we just started out with the uh, the FRS radios and uh, and they're battery uh, the uh, battery operated and and then I started looking at ways to get the uh, rechargeable batteries and stuff like that and then I started uh, at the same time I was looking at other requirements other things that were needed and uh, Walmart started selling these these huge lots of uh, solar charge like lawn lights and. Mm-hmm. I just uh, I started buying those uh, by the hundreds because uh, hell you could buy one for for ninety cents. Uh, yeah, which which meant that you could you could light your whole house, uh, and these things are rugged because I tried them out for a couple of years like down at our range. I use them to mark the uh, the toilets and stuff uh, at night, and the the shower the the outdoor showers that we have they then they run with no uh, no maintenance no nothing they've got I've got one that's been running for two and a half years uh, but they run forever and they have inside them certain uh, of them have 
batteries that you can use for your radio. So that means that you could uh, – now what I have is just uh, I've got a big uh, cart. And it used to be uh, like for serving snacks and trays and stuff. And now it just holds uh, 300 of the solar lights. And I can just wheel it out onto the front porch and it can soak up the light. And I can use the light however I need it or I can take the batteries out of them. Uh, and use those batteries for the radios. And so we we started using the radios just to try and figure out how we can get at least some minimal uh, communications. And this is just if we're you know if we're almost all inside of each other and we don't want to yell, we could use this for communication. Then we started saying, well, how far can we go with these? And and started expanding and uh, and even with the the, the the ones that say 25 miles, 26 miles, uh, <laughs> you're going to be very lucky if you can get two or three miles out of them. Uh, although we did we did set the guys out. They got out on the highways uh, on a couple of different days. They got out on the highways and they 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 drove slowly along the highway trying to find a place to communicate from, going to and from certain areas and to our location. But once they found a place they could communicate from, then we would mark that on the map so that if somebody had to come uh, to come and visit us or whatever, uh, there would be some certain places they could try and call us and let us know whatever along the, the way. So we could, we could try and talk to people from where we are uh, at different locations. And it's a, it's a fairly inexpensive way to start building your communications uh, operation. But uh, can you tell folks uh, some of the and, – and before I before I forget, one of the guys in the chat room posted that uh, – he says he knows of some families that they got – they picked up some of the big old junk satellite antennas, I guess uh, like the ones from apartment complexes and stuff like that, and – they use PVC pipe to aim the beams at each other, and then they use them to talk to each other over a 40-mile distance with the FRS radios. Have you ever heard of that? Um, anything's possible. I mean, FRS radios <laughs> are um, FRS radios operate on the 400 megahertz band. Okay, and if you have a um, the wavelength on that would be. Well, let's see, 440 is about 70 centimeter band. So, you know, you're talking wavelengths in the, you know, in the, seven, in the you know, less than 70 centimeters. Um, I could tell you that my personal record uh, involves eh, probably about 80 or 90 milliwatts um, on 10 gigahertz um, from, uh, without going into too many personal details, uh, it was on the ham bands. Um, it involved uh, 10 gigahertz uh, with a standard, you know, direct TV dish, you know, with a modified feed for the, you know, for the correct band. And I talked from um, a spot in Long Island Sound from a rather high elevation compared to the rest of the terrain uh, up to one of the taller locations in northern New Hampshire. Wow. And it was about close to... 200 miles or so, I'd say, and that was just with a few milliwatts into a dish uh, up on a really, really high microwave band. As a matter of fact, it's the same band that they use for uh, one of the bands they use for police radar uh, and uh, intelligent traffic systems. 
Um, but then again, there was no obstructions between me and this, um, you know, presidential mountaintop. And it was, uh, you know, there were no obstructions there. You know, the frequency was clear. Uh, we were using directional antennas with a whole lot of gain. Um, conceivably an 18-inch, um, and you know, since you're talking a wavelength, quarter wavelength on uh, 440 is uh, around 450, it's actually probably about six inches. So an 18-inch, uh, you know, uh, reflector um, on the, uh, you know, uh, stuck behind an FRS radio, uh, you know, or an antenna on that, I mean, you're basically at that point building a small, you know, directional beam antenna. Uh, I have to give a caveat uh, with, you know, messing around with FRS radios. Uh, you're not supposed to, you know, do any modification to them. It's just like it's basically UHS-CB. But, um, you know, I'm sure people, uh, you know, I'm sure there are some people that have experimented with that. Uh, I know for a while until the FCC squashed it, uh, there were these um, the first seven FRS channels are actually shared with GMRS, which is a licensed radio service on UHF. I think it's like $90 for three or five years or something like that. Uh, but you can actually do things with GMRS, uh, you know, add extra antennas and all that. And I think you might be limited to 20 watts of power. Uh, but there are actually several um, GMRS slash FRS handhelds that ran like one to five watts. Um, and the first seven channels are shared with FRS, and you can actually run higher power on them if you have a GMRS, a GMRS license. Um, but, you know, the antennas were removable. So they removed the antennas and put external antennas on them, and that was actually perfectly legal if you were operating under GMRS rules on the uh, FRS frequencies. But if you were running under, you know, FRS rules without a license, um, you know, yeah, the FCC would take a dim view of it if they caught you. Um, so yeah, I mean that that wouldn't uh, you know surprise me because they're basically using you know that dish as a uh, you know as a reflector, and that's you know basically what it is, you know, a parabolic reflector. Um, they um, so yeah, I mean if you get behind something, um, you know if you get that you know get the right wavelength distance behind that, you know the signal's going to uh, you know it's going to act as a directional reflector and give you a little extra gain. Um, Forty miles on um, you know on FRS. Uh, heck, if you're mountaintop to mountaintop and you have no obstructions and there's no one else on the frequency, uh, or you know, or anyone else nearby, you know, jacking up the noise floor, yeah, that's you know, that's a possibility. Uh, because again, you know, there's nothing. You know, if you're up, if you're both up at you know, up at 8,000 feet, uh, 40 miles away, and everything else is below you, you know, and you're the two highest things, uh, you know, on the horizon, yeah, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna reach out that far and. Uh, you know, and, and talk to one another. Um, well, there are actually amateur radio operators that do that. They run sideband on the VHF and UHF frequencies. They call them weak signal operators. And they go to high locations and, uh, you know, they, uh, they get significantly uh, longer distances than you would think would be possible on the VHF and UHF bands. Well, let's, let's talk about this for just a second. Uh, and that is <clears throat> for folks uh, just some uh, some general recommendations for inexpensive gear for folks to start out with. Now I'm going to tell you guys that he that Sparks has a, uh, a post on his uh, on his blog, uh, and I put the uh, uh, I put the information in the chat room, but it's I believe it's Sparks31.wordpress.com. That's correct. And, uh, and if you look at uh, uh, 
the uh, radios category, you'll find uh, some information on this. And this is, uh, I think, some really good information. I'm not going to read it to you. It's, uh, it's a little bit humorous, and you can read it yourself. But the gist of it is this. He's saying that uh, that for for the folks that are out there spending thousands of dollars on your rifles and your gear, the, the $500 backpacks, uh, you know, on and on, all of the top-of-the-line gear, and then heading down to the radio shack and grabbing one of the uh, the uh, Chinese squad radios uh, is not a great idea. I guess oh, no, we're not going to start this again, are we? <laughs> I'm just saying that, uh, uh. that, that folks, folks should have some kind of idea on what what they should get, and if yours, if your information here is saying that that don't go down there and buy the cheap radios for your uh, for your squad gear, then give give people some starting points on where they should get what they should get. And like I said, we started with with buying the uh, what we consider to be like some of the best uh, uh, the FRS radios, just to get, so that people would have stuff to use to communicate. We use those also for our when we're running events where, uh, like our, we've got a zombie biathlon, a four-and-a-half-mile looping course with shooting stations and stuff like that, and we have to keep in contact with all of the people around the course, and this was uh, the least expensive method we could use to, to, to do that. If folks, if they're just starting out and they don't have a big budget, how should they start? Mm, well, my, my, first, my first advice... All right, my first piece of advice, you know, is that uh, as far as comms go, okay, uh, without, you know, without getting into anything, is you've got to figure out who you're going to talk to. All right, you need to get together with your group and figure out what you're going to do with radio gear and what your requirements are and go from there. Um, I've, and this has been a, a big controversy on the blog and amongst a lot of the prepper forums. Yeah, I am pretty down on some of the Chinese radios. Um, the um, some of them are actually not. Um, I've mentioned uh, three particular models in particular. They are Wuxin, W-O-X, U-N, Puxing, P-U-X-I-N-G, and T-Y-T, um, which some people uh, you know pronounce as a titty. Um, the uh, that always gets a chuckle amongst certain people. Um, but then again, yeah, some of us are kind of. You know, sophomoric in our humor at times. But those three radios are actually decent. The Baofangs, not so much. Um, and I've played around with a few of them, and the quality control leaves a lot to be desired. Um, again, if you're in that, you know, if you're in what we refer to as the Mosin Nagant category of finances, um, not that there's anything wrong with Mosin Nagants, but, you know, that's, the, that's now the classic, like, that replaced the right. SKS in the 1990s. Uh, if that's what you can afford, hey, at least you got a 30 caliber rifle that uh, that will really reach out and uh, you know smack things with some authority. Um, and when you run out of ammo, you can use it as a club. Um, not to mention that really, really long uh, bayonet that they come with. Uh, great rifle. Yeah. Everyone should have yeah. two of them um, yeah, in, in exactly. the collection, um, <laughs> along with a couple of Mausers and a Lee Enfield. Um, the because uh, if you don't have a good couple of solid 30 caliber, uh, you know, uh, uh, hitters, uh, you should at least go and buy two of them. But if you know, again, it's you know, it's what you can afford. Um, 
but you really need to get with your group. As far as talking, you got to figure out who you're going to talk to, and you really need to get with your group and with surrounding groups, so everyone is on the you know is on the same sheet of music, um, because it would make no sense if you've got um, you know all this you know ham gear, and uh, which is you know good to have, but if no one else in your you know in your area in your AO is running you know, that you want to talk to is running ham gear, and they're all running FRS radios, then you know you've got a bit of a problem there. Um, you know, you all have to be able to talk to one another. Um, likewise, if you're all more than, say, two or three miles away from each other, handhelds aren't going to cut it. You're going to have to, you know, uh, you know, step up your communications, uh, you know, a, a level or two. Um, going into, you know, I'm, I'm digressing here a little bit. As far as generalities go, um, first thing I always recommend people do is, is get some education. Um, go, you know, if you have, uh, you know, even if you don't, you know, get into, really get into this, you at least have the knowledge for someone else to, you know, to peruse it, uh, if they need it. Um, get yourself, uh, you know, go download the, um, the Navy, uh, essentials of, you know, uh, electrical, you know, electronic technology, the NEATS, uh, the NEATS volumes, which are free for download over the internet. Uh, there's 20 some odd of them, and it's quite a bit of material there to go through, but it's a really good basic course. Um, get a copy of the ARRL handbook for radio communications and have that because that's a really, really good reference on, you know, some of the ham radio stuff. Um, and if you see any other electronics books, if, you know, electronics is your thing, um, getting started in electronics from Forrest Mims, uh, the third, who I believe lives down in Texas, actually. Um, you can get that at Radio Shack. That's a really, really good book for a beginner. Uh, that's what I started with. And uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting and useful schematics in it, uh, particularly if you decide to get his uh, engineer's mini notebooks. And I have to say that um, science and communications circuits and projects and electronic sensor circuits and projects are probably two must-haves, uh, you know, for, for the tech bench, you know, right off the bat. Um, education, no one can take it away from you. You always have it in your head. Uh, heck, if you get good enough at electronics uh, and really get into it, you can even get a copy of the ARRL's book, uh, Experimental Methods in RF Design and Make Your Own Radios. Um, there's a guy uh, out in Oregon. Um, I don't know him personally, um, but if you do a Google search on Neanderthal, um, he, um, he lives out in Oregon. Um, he's, a, uh, he's heavy into, uh, like I said, I don't know this guy permanently, so don't go... You know, don't go bugging this guy, please, because um, he's just a regular dude. But he's into primitive living, and he builds his own radios from junk salvage radios he gets from Hamfest for free or pretty close to it. And if you right. do a Google search on Neanderthal and look at this guy's webpage, and like I said, don't don't go harass the guy because I don't know him personally, and he probably doesn't even know I exist, but I bet he does now. Um, this guy builds, I mean, I would, I'd sell a kidney to spend a week with this guy, uh, to learn what this guy knows because just about every piece of equipment in this guy's cabin is built from parts. Yeah, you can get at that level if you want to. And here's just a guy, you know, like I say, just this dude living out in, out in a cabin in Oregon, 
I think he might also have a cabin a little bit further uh, east, uh, you know, in, into the Rockies as well, like out near Montana somewhere. Well, here's a guy who lives in a cabin, practices primitive living, you know, skills, and he's also into electronics, and he builds his own radios out of junk, um, you know, out of basic components, and he gets on the air with it. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, that's, you know, if, you're, if you want to do grid down communications, that's the guy you really want to emulate. Um, you know, that and you can build a fire, you know, without, you know, with, you know, by rubbing two sticks together, uh, and other primitive methods, you know, that, that's the person, you know, everyone should, uh, you know, should wind up being emulating. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's the ideal there as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, to aim for. Um, but as far as, you know, the knowledge you can never, you know, no one can ever take away the knowledge, uh, you know, from you. And as long as you have that up in your head, you can do a lot. Um, as far as what, any, what everybody should wind up getting, um, I'd say at the very, very least, uh, get a police scanner, uh, the best police scanner you can afford, uh, and preferably one that would enable, enable you to monitor, you know, all the communications in your area. I know the top of the line scanner right now is about four or five hundred bucks, um, and there's only really one scanner manufacturer uh, in the country right now. That's Unit in Bearcat. Uh, GRE, who made the Radio Shack scanners, uh, is trying to come back into business, uh, but there's a problem with the factory over in China, and they haven't started production up. And it's uh, even money whether they actually GRE actually brings scanners back. I think Whistler, uh, the radar detector people, uh, bought GRE, and they were going to retool some of their manufacturing and put scanners out. To the best of my knowledge, it hasn't happened yet. So right now, Unit in Bearcat is the scanner. Uh, is your only choice really for a, for a decent police scanner that'll you know pick up some of the you know digital p- police communications, the P25 systems uh, and the trunk systems. If you look around the used equipment sources, you can find other stuff uh, as well. Um, I use I have a P25 scanner here because you know my some of my local agencies are, are digital, uh, and more than a few of them are unfortunately encrypted. Um, I wind up finding mine used at a ham fest, so not even I'm buying, you know, bought the latest and greatest, and I'm, you know, heavy into communications monitoring. Uh, but the stuff is out there, you know, and you can find it, you know, look around, ask people who know, uh, you know, who are familiar with, you know, police scanners in your area. Um, and even if you're out in, like, in the middle of nowhere, there's probably some local scanner enthusiast who will, you know, be able to tell you what to get, and radioreference.com is your friend. Um, get a scanner, get a shortwave receiver. Everybody should have one of those and learn how to use it. You may not become some Uber signal analyst, you know, interceptor type, but at least you'll know what's going on. And it really doesn't take a genius uh, to know that something's up when the, uh, you know, when when the uh, when the when the local fire department gets dispatched, to, you know, to a train derailment that just came out of a local chemical plant. Anybody can put two and two together on that one, and you know, come up with four and realize that probably a really, really good idea to stay up with from that. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, a lot of it is going to be that obvious. All right? Matter of fact, not, not too long ago, didn't you guys out there in Texas have a, have a fertilizer plant that decided to go take off yes, on itself? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. And it was, uh, it was the, the explosion and stuff was actually like a, I don't know, like almost like a small loop, you know, yeah, it was. Uh, it almost looked like uh, uh, I, I don't want to say a 2,000 pound bomb because that wouldn't really uh, that wouldn't really provide the amount of, of damage that it did. It was it was huge and uh, uh, 
you know, knock down trees and everything else. Uh, listen, that was the English lady in my ear saying that we've got 90 seconds. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, for coming on and speaking tonight. I think uh, the information you put out is fantastic. I can't wait to get to the course. And, guys, uh, if you want to know more, he's got the Sparks has the blog at sparks.wordpress.com. Sparks31. Sparks31.com. Sparks31.wordpress.com. Right. And then uh, you can check that. You can check our uh, website, battleroadusa.com. And uh, we've got our information there, to, and all linking back and going to him. He's got two books out, uh, and he's got an electronic book that you can purchase. Uh, I would uh, I would advise you guys to get started on learning this. Listen, can we have you come back again and talk again uh, uh, in a couple of months? Uh, sure. I mean, there's you know plenty to talk about. I'm more than happy to you know share what I know with people. Um, so yeah, I mean, just uh, let me know when, and uh, you know we can continue where we uh, where we left off because there's still uh, you know, we haven't even really scratched the surface, you know, in the two hours um, or one hour that we've actually yeah two hours that we've uh, talked to here tonight. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, all right. Well, thank you. For we will. Uh, we'll see you guys. At the-